Well, today I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a guy you may have never heard about, but someone who became a lover of the light. And he learned how to infuse his life with meaning and purpose in a way that few have. His name is Hudson Taylor. Now, the interesting thing about Hudson is that he was able to open up the Chinese marketplace 100 years before Richard Nixon did it. 100 years before America really made any inroads into China, this man was able to create a business, uh, an entrepreneurship, uh, a way of creating churches, schools, and addiction programs during the opium crisis in China back in the 1800s. What was amazing about this guy is that he was an agnostic doctor who didn't necessarily believe in the Bible. In fact, uh, his parents were into that kind of thing, but he wasn't. He had questions and he had doubts. And yet it was on the journey of a spark of the purpose in his own life that he began to find a greater purpose. He began to find that maybe there was a God. Maybe that God had a grander vision and plan for his life. And maybe he was created to do pretty incredible things. In fact, he's kind of a funny character because he's going to be known for being so goal-driven that he was late to his own wedding. And yet, also, he would inspire hundreds, thousands of people to leave America, to go and live in China, to start schools for those who had no schools, to help break addiction to those who were addicted to opium, and to talk about his own journey of learning what it means to pray, learning whether or not God really gets involved in, in this life. And he was able to do that as a, as a medical person, as an agnostic. He was a banker before he was a doctor. And it was in those professions he began to really think about the bigger questions in life. And one of the questions he began to ask himself is, what does a life that really matters look like? And that's the theme I want to look at today. You see, see a bonfire faith, and this guy, by the time he's at the end of his life, has a bonfire faith. He lives with such purpose. He lives with such joy, and yet at great cost to his own life. At great cost to himself, and yet he still lives with a fortitude and a, a perseverance that we can only dream of. But see, building a bonfire, you ever built a big bonfire before? Especially a big one that's going to provide heat for, for, for a whole neighborhood or for a whole community. To get a big bonfire, it's going to be built with the kindling of, of doubts. Along the way, you're going to have doubts about yourself, doubts about God, doubts about what God does or doesn't do, whether prayer really works or you're just talking to the ceiling. And Hudson Taylor has the same thing. He has a journey of building a bonfire faith, but he does it with the kindling of his own doubts. He doesn't see doubts as his enemy. He sees doubts as a friend, something that can be utilized to, to build a, a grander faith, a grander hope, and the wrestling with those questions and the wrestling with those doubts becomes a critical part of his journey. And hopefully his story will inspire you and I in our journey. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Timothy Paul is talking to a young man named Timothy, and he says, I have seen in you a genuine faith, 
and authentic faith. You didn't just take your parents' face and cut and paste it over to yours. It came from your mother and from your grandmother, but it's become genuine because you were willing to ask the hard questions. You're willing to, the kindling of your own questions and your own doubts and your own journey to build a faith that's inspiring other people. What are three ways that you and I can build a genuine connection to a higher purpose? So let's look at the first way that we have that genuine faith. And the the first thing we need to do is to gather the kindling of our own doubts. And that's what Hudson Taylor did. It was interesting, but he grew up in the 1800s and he was a very successful entrepreneur. He was a banker at age 17. He will eventually become a doctor. And he grew up in a household with a father who was into science. His dad was both a chemist as well as a person of faith. And he talked often about his hopes for Hudson uh, developing his own faith and doing great things for God. And so was his mom. But as is often the case when mom and dad pressure you one direction, you head the other direction. And they began to notice a skepticism. Now Hudson would say it this way. He's like, I don't really want to be religious because you religious people take life way too seriously. I'm going to lose my professional edge, but mostly I'm just going to not enjoy life. Christians don't seem like the fun people to hang out with. And so he began to have his doubts accumulate. Doubts that he could be who he wanted to be. Doubts that the Christian life would be a particularly fun thing to do. But also religion seemed like a drag. It seemed like a lot of work. Pray a lot, give a lot, uh, organize your life around a bunch of religious activities. Little did he know that he had a, a sister and a mother who were praying for him. Now that sometimes sounds annoying if you had somebody praying for you like you're their pet project. You know, God rescue the soul of my brother or my spouse. It's sometimes kind of annoying. But they kept that quiet. They just cared about him. And they recognized he had concerns. And they could sense this unsettledness in him. So they just prayed that God would help him with the kindling of doubt that was starting to pile around him. He would later appreciate their care and love for him. Well, despite his skepticism, he came across a little religious pamphlet called The Finished Work of Christ. And something about that struck him. It took out this misnomer that he had that religion was about doing stuff for God and that you had to work really hard to have kind of a miserable life and then maybe you get to heaven. That phrase caught him. The finished work of Christ. It was saying that the main message of the Bible is not what we do for God. It's what God did for us. And if we surrender to that, God could fill us up or or teach us what he designed us to do. And this became a pivotal moment in him gathering his own doubts and starting a spark of his own faith. In fact, he would later say it this way as he was describing one of those key moments in his journey. He said, I stretched before him, talking of God, I laid everything I had before him. I was aware that I was not my own. Maybe I was made for someone. And in that moment of wrestling with that, something began to happen in him and through him. He was on his journey towards something genuine, something real. Reminds me a little bit of what Paul said to Timothy, right? Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I don't want you just to have a stale faith or your parents' faith or an upgraded faith of somebody else. I want you to have your own faith, a genuine, an authentic faith 
The same kind you had from your mother and grandmother. But if you want to find that, he says, you got to do some gathering of your own doubts and your own journey. You must continue in the things which you have learned. Your spiritual connection, your, your grander purpose, it's about learning things. Things you've been assured of from the beginning. You need to work at that. You need to look at that. You need to examine that. I think sometimes we're not particularly great at encouraging people to look at their doubts. You know, one of the things I love about our church is that we're trying to comfortably connect people to God. That's why we have an exploring service as well as an equipping service. We think examining your own doubts, wrestling with your own journey, is an important part of a genuine convictions, right? You don't get to your own genuine convictions unless you wrestle with where you got them and why you've come to your conclusions. You've heard opposing opinions or opposing uh, opposition to your convictions. In fact, helping people explore their own journey is what we're all about as a church. And Hudson Taylor is a key example of that. Now sometimes as a parent, it can be a little frustrating because all of a sudden you've been trying to teach your kids like Hudson Taylor's father did, teach him important things about his faith or about his journey or about his life and suddenly you see your son questioning all that, rejecting all that and you get nervous, right? Because, oh, you have found these convictions have made your life more joyful and more purposeful. And then when your son or daughter decides that they're gonna not embrace that, rightfully so you get anxious but what if we took a different approach there's a famous Christian for lack of a better term named Josh McDowell he's a friend of mine and he was an atheist it was in college he went through a a period of wrestling with is the Bible true is Jesus really who he claimed to be can a smart person really swallow these teachings from the Bible And it was this period of gathering his own kindling of doubts that he began to become probably one of the greatest explainers and defenders in the sense of giving evidence for what conclusions he's come to probably in the world today. But he had a son. (laughs) And his son, Sean, went through a similar journey in college where he began to come to dad and say, hey, dad, you may be a famous Christian who's convinced everybody else it's true, I'm not sure it's true for me. And we had Josh speak to a parents event several years ago and he said, that moment when my son shared his questions with me, I got nervous inside, but what I said to him is this, Sean, this is gonna be great. This is such an exciting time for you. It's exactly what I did in my life. I had to examine the evidence and look at the conclusions and rethink it all. And this is how your faith becomes your own. I don't want you to have my faith. I want you to have your faith. And rather than his son feeling like, hey, dad's rejected me. Dad's gonna condemn this process. He was able to, despite his nervousness, say this is exactly what you need to do to go on your own journey. How about you? How about with your kids or your family? What if we became people who encouraged people to gather the kindling of doubts on their way to discovering their own purpose, their own faith, and their own answers? But there's a second thing we need to do. Well, the second thing we need to do is to fan the flame of faith from the spark of curiosity. Why not be curious? 
Let's be curious about some things, some questions, some practices. That's exactly what Hudson Taylor did. He had this ability to take his curiosity and let it spark something that became a genuine faith. Again, very similar to what Paul says to Timothy in a letter he wrote. He said, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. Kind of like stirring up a fire or stirring up the flame. Now, if you're a guy who's ever been by a bonfire, right? You, you remember as a kid, is the fire ever quite right? No, right? You always got to take a stick and poke at it. You kind of stir it and you kind of push it around and grab another branch. In fact, I remember when uh, Javen, my son Javen was, I don't know, four or five. We had first moved to Cincinnati and we made our first kind of bonfire. And I remember it's kind of the first moment he sort of captured that. And we got the stick and he poked at it and kind of stirred it up and got that thing going. And that's this idea that when you're curious about something like a fire, when you're curious about your own faith or your own questions, you begin to stir it up, kind of poke at it and work at it. That's exactly what Hudson Taylor did. He began begin by kind of poking at the, the fire of his own curiosity. He began to say to himself, you know, I wonder if, uh, wonder if Bible study is something that's really true. Should I look into Bible study? Should I try it? In one sense, he might say, like some people, I don't believe in the Bible, why would I read it? He thought, you know, I read all kinds of stuff I don't believe in. Maybe I should just be curious. So he began to lean in to the Bible. He began to read it. And there's something about his his mom and and dad, they had a a real interest in China. So he actually picked up an English version of the book of Luke and a Chinese version of the book of Luke. And just kind of curiosity with languages and a curiosity at a family that was, was uh, devoted to the Chinese culture. He taught himself Chinese. Can you imagine that? Taught himself how to read Chinese by taking the book of Luke written in English and the book of Luke written in Chinese and he taught himself how to read the Bible and he became bilingual. Now his own faith is still kind of uh, just beginning but he was curious about China curious about languages and curious about Jesus. And this unique journey of studying this began digging into not did, what did parents say about Jesus? What did Jesus say about Jesus? What did Jesus claim? What did he say? What has he done? This was the idea that he was spurring in. And in that journey he said, so I wanted to live a life that pleased God. Something just getting in the Bible made me want to please God, want to be part of a bigger picture. So I said, I'll I'll do anything, God. Now, that's quite a journey to go from questions and doubts. But over that time, he said, you know, I think if you really are good, and if you really are God, then you know what's best for me. I'm willing to do anything. And go anywhere I felt God say, your prayer has been answered. Uh Uh-oh. Your conditions are accepted, meaning you'll go anywhere. You're called to China. And God took this interest in Bible study, this interest in Chinese culture, and put this passion in him to go to China, a place he hadn't been before, just heard about, to accomplish some pretty incredible things. He realized if he was going to go to China, he was going to have to learn how to live on very little. And if he was serious that maybe God was asking him to do this bigger plan, this bigger vision, he needed to do some curious testing of whether or not he could really trust God. 
Well, at that point, again, he was a doctor's assistant. He had moved from the banking career to a doctor's assistant. But he had a boss that had a really interesting pattern. His boss would forget to pay him every couple weeks. And his boss would say, listen, I'm just absent-minded. Just remind me and I'll give you your paycheck. So put that on the shelf for a second. Second thing, he realized if I'm going to live in China, I need to learn how to live generously and how to live on very little. So he began to train himself while living in, in uh, England how to live off of only 10% of his income. He would find what's the cheapest amount of rice he could buy, what's the cheapest amount of beans he could buy to live off of to put as much of his money aside as he could. So he began to train himself how to be thrifty. He trained himself how to eat foods that would be in China but not necessarily in England. But the real thing he wanted to train himself on is, can I learn to pray? I've never really prayed before. That's when he found out that his mom and sister had been praying for him during those years of skepticism. In fact, his mom shared that that particular day, many, many years ago, that he had picked up that religious pamphlet that said, the finished work of Christ. His mom said, I had been praying for a week just straight on a week about you and about your journey. And I was praying a different house than you were in, different room than you were in. I was praying at that very moment and I felt like God was saying to me, I've got your son in my hands and I'm gonna help him on the journey. And it was at that very moment, she said, on that very day that you happened to come across that religious pamphlet that God told me that he had you in his hands. That had Hudson thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is interesting. I believe maybe a God that wound up the universe, but a God who interacts in life? Wow, my mom has a dynamic prayer life, whatever that means. And my sister has a dynamic prayer life, whatever that means. But if I'm going to trust God to align my life to a whole new region, I'm going to have to practice or get curious about practicing prayer. So he decided that he wasn't going to remind his boss about his paycheck. A week went by, two weeks went by, a month went by. At any time he could have, I would be like, remind your boss, he told you to remind him, but he didn't. He felt like part of his journey of learning how to trust in God and learning how to have a prayer life is to trust that God would prompt his boss. I'd be like, that's crazy. But for him, it was this curiosity. Does God really care about me? And if God can't provide for me from my boss on a job that I'm owed, how am I going to trust him in a whole other nation? Well, it came down to really his, his last amount of money. And he had this last amount of money he, who's going to have to pay his mortgage that day. And the amount of money he had wasn't enough for food and it wasn't enough for his mortgage. And sure enough, he was like, oh, I guess I don't have enough prayer. Or I guess God doesn't really work. Or I guess I can't really trust God to provide for me. So he's on his way home one day and all of a sudden he's got his last kind of quarter. It's the day before the mortgage is due and there's some folks in the neighborhood that come out who are impoverished and are poor and need help. Well, he's equally impoverished. He gives his last coin to them. Kind of another piece of this curiosity and test. Well, the next day he goes to work thinking God didn't come through. It's all over with. He goes through his whole day of work. His boss again doesn't remember. And then as he's walking out the door, his boss is like, hey, wait a second. When's the last time I paid you? Oh, it's been a while. His boss went through his notes. Oh my goodness, it's been like a month. 
And then his boss says, it's late at night. The bank is closed. I don't have that cash around to pay you for a full month's wages. And suddenly he went from being elated to being crushed because he had to pay the mortgage that evening. Well, uncharacteristic of anything that ever happened in their doctor's practice, they get a knock on the door at like seven at night. There was a particular client that they had who had a tendency to pay a quarter at a time for the services he got from the doctor. He happens to knock on the door, happens to walk into the doctor and say, hey, listen, I felt prompted that I know I typically don't come this late at night, but that I was supposed to bring and pay you for the next quarter tonight. Hudson's jaw dropped. He felt like just when he was willing to give up on prayer and give up on God and give up on God providing for him, God had shown up in a dramatic way. And he would talk about the curiosity of this moment of him experimenting with prayer and experimenting with giving and experimenting with poverty and experimenting with trust would become foundational for the incredible things he did with the rest of his life. So how about you? Are you willing to be curious? Maybe the spark of curiosity with Bible study, with God, digging in, trying new things. What would it look like for just to try it? Experiment with your questions, your doubts, and see what God might do. There's a third thing that strikes me. He's already said, God, I'll go anywhere and do anything. He's now married, and he and his wife are heading to China. Well, when they arrive, they arrive with 16 other families. They do something pretty significant. One, they decided to fully embrace the Chinese culture. Rather than imposing Western culture on the Asian culture, as if being a Christian meant being a a Brit, they decided to fully embrace what does Christianity look like? What does loving other people look like in the Chinese culture? So he does something revolutionary. He begins to dress in the, uh, the clothing of the Chinese. He begins to cut his hair where he has just one piece of uh, uh, a tail or a pigtail going down the back. Well, no one had ever seen a Westerner do this. In fact, there was a lot of pushback on him for doing this. But he felt like this was the best way to untangle Christianity from some of its cultural uh, clutter and to make sure he was teaching people about how to embrace God in their own culture. So he comes over with 16 people. And he's going to have to practice this third really important but hard principle of genuine faith. Focus on the heat you'll provide rather than the firewood you'll burn when you take your faith to the next level. All right, when you make a bonfire, we, we grew up burning wood all the time at our house. That's how we uh, kept our house warm. You don't focus on the wood you're burning. Oh my goodness, we only have three logs left. You focus on the heat you'll provide. The same thing is true. If you're gonna take anything to the next level, there's gonna be sacrifice. You're gonna burn up some logs to make a bonfire. There's gonna be stuff that gets burned in order to produce a bigger heat. That's certainly true with Hudson. So he arrives with his family, with his now wife and kids. And when they get to China, all of a sudden he says, what are the spiritual needs here? What are ways I can serve the needs around me? And he begins to notice, again, one of the things that got him into the country was the, the opium embargo. So he comes in and finds people are addicted. And as a doctor, he thinks I can use my skills as a doctor to help the real tangible needs here in China. 
So he takes a boat and he goes literally door to door to door with medical supplies, helping, assessing, giving away free medical care. As he's taking his, his boat from village to village, people are coming out. They are just impoverished. No one has access to doctors. They are so grateful that this doctor would provide for them and their needs. And it's here he begins to sit in homes and hear about questions of poverty, problems of poverty. So many people addicted to opium and the need for some type of addiction centers and, and no schooling. And it's here in this moment that he begins to really think about the heat he can provide, the ways he could use his skills and his passion, his desires to, to transform the landscape of this area. However, there's a civil war going on. He came to China right in the middle of a civil war. He's staying in this house. Again, so picture this American Brit dressed up in Chinese culture, looking like he's Chinese, which allowed him to really um, speak into the lives of the culture without looking like someone who didn't fit in. He writes this book, and it's called China's Spiritual Need, where he'll make 3,000 copies of this book himself to help let the whole world know about those in addiction and those in poverty who need help during this time. But he's staying in a house during the Civil War in China. And all of a sudden, a cannonball gets shot through his house. Can you imagine? You're in your house and a literal cannonball comes shooting through. Next thing he knows, his whole house is on fire. You talk about the sacrifice. He suddenly has a family. He's got a wife. He's got kids. His house has been destroyed. His house has been burned. It'd be easy to say, you know what? Forget it. I'm going home. It's a lot more comfortable back in London. But he didn't focus on the firewood he'd burn, his discomfort, his difficulty. It'd be easier someone else. He kept focusing on the heat he'd provide. There's a huge spiritual need. There's a huge educational need. There is a huge personal need. And I might be uniquely gifted and have access. No other Westerner had gotten to China at that time to help bring about meaning and purpose to people in need. However, the sacrifice goes up before it goes down. In fact, that's often what happens before we go to the next level in anything, is that sacrifice is going to be required to get to the next level. But oh my goodness, the sacrifice he makes are unbelievable. Now God gives him a hint of what he's going to be able to do, even in that day of taking those supplies in the boat. He comes across one small village And there's a man there who hears him talk about God, his own journey of skepticism to belief. And as he finishes hearing the the main message of the Bible, this uh, Chinese friend says, all my life I've studied Taoism and Buddhism and I have never found more peace than I found today. And that spark of seeing one person's life changed would become a spark that would eventually lead to a hundred schools of people who found freedom from addiction and freedom from poverty and began to invest in people, who invested in people, who invested in people. And a hundred years later, there are millions and millions of Chinese believers in Jesus that can be traced back to the impact of one man who provided heat for an entire nation, but it began one life at a time, one sacrifice at a time, when he focused on the heat he might provide rather than the sacrifices he would make. But the sacrifices were significant. In fact, he lost his daughter 
to meningitis and he was crushed. He and his wife sent the kids back to England while they were uh, finishing up a few things for their first run in China and they were grieving. They had another child and the child's name was Chance. They named him Chance. But now his, his wife, Hudson's wife, died during childbirth and he lost his son. And again, at this point, I'd be like, I have sacrificed too much. The cost is too great. There's no way I'm ever coming back to this place that has taken my family. Well, after grieving his wife and bearing his child, he gets on the boat to head back to England to be with his kids that he had sent back there for safety concerns because of the Civil War. It was on that journey back over a period of months that he met another woman and they would fall in love. And by the time they arrived in England, they would be married. And a new spouse meets the kids, and they just are really connected to their now stepmom. And what's amazing is despite the loss and despite the hardship and despite the difficulty, did you know that years later, almost every one of his kids will devote their life to going to China and spending their life giving their lives to the same types of programs, the same type of, of impact? Like, how is that possible? Like, how is it possible that you could see a a country, a vision, uh, a challenge that took your mom, that took your sister, and you'd say, yeah, I want to spend some time there. I want to devote my life the way dad did. But there was something about Hudson's journey. He looked at the Bible, looked at God, and said, God, listen, I I surrendered everything. And boy, I'm grieved at the loss. But God... I want to do what you've called me to do. There's a verse in uh, Corinthians that I think is helpful in understanding maybe what motivated him. God says the end of your life, everything you've ever done is going to be burned up in a fire and only the good stuff that was done for other people will remain. It says each person's work will become clear on that day when the day declares it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one of your works to see what kind it is. If anyone works in such a way that uh, it, it endures that fire, he will have a reward, an incredible reward. But if anyone's work does not endure, get burned up by that fire, he will suffer loss. Yet even so, through fire. I think what motivated Hudson is saying, one day I'm gonna stand before God And he loved me. He forgave me. He entrusted me so many things. And I tried to serve and help and use my medical skills and use my faith journey, use my my, my prayer and my curiosity. And I tried to impact a country that had a unique window of time. And oh, the cost was great. Wow, loss of my wife and loss of my children. But on that day, when God tests everything I've done, there's a lot that's gonna remain. Hundreds of schools, thousands of impact and even my kids who saw me grieve and trust God in the midst of my grief it made them have a genuine faith and and, you know going back to those days remember when his boss uh, forgot to pay him he continued to practice that he would share the needs around him here's the vision here's what I'm doing he would never ask for money he would just share the needs and and ask God to prompt people to be part of what he was doing 
In fact, he ended up speaking in Chicago at this gigantic church called Moody Church uh, by an evangelist named D.L. Moody. I I know the church well because I went to college near there and I used to work there actually. And so he comes to D.L. Moody's church. It's an auditorium about 3,000. He gets done talking about what he's doing, the schools they're building, the addiction centers, the, 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 the various places. He's been back and forth to China now, I think six to 10 times. And as he's sharing that day, this is a mother load moment, a moment to, to just ask giant congregation for, for money. In fact, D.L. Moody, the pastor, comes up to him and says, hey, after we're done today, I'll ask for a love offering to support your, your ministry, your, your nonprofit. And Hudson Taylor, who's got all this stuff going, is so consistent. He says to D.L. Moody, no, I don't ask for money. I share the need and I trust God to prompt people. D.L. Moody's jaw drops. Well, you, you gotta be kidding. What kind of a nonprofit doesn't ask for money? Just ask people to pray about it. He says, well, that's what I've practiced my entire career. Well, sure enough, at the end of the, uh, the service that day, a few bucks come in, but not very much. Dale Moody's kind of like, should have listened to my advice, and, which is kind of like the whole life of Hudson Taylor. Like, that seems so naive until the next day. The next day, next day, somebody who was uh, in the congregation that day, hearing him talk about all the incredible kind of spiritual holistic centers he's building all over China, said, you know what? God prompted me to write a check to you for $3,000. Now that's in 1800 money. This was a massive gift. As Hudson Taylor said, well, thank you so much. What prompted you? And this benefactor said, you know, I think if you'd asked me last night for money, I would feel like you're trying to manipulate me. I wouldn't have given maybe, you know, five, 10 bucks. But I started thinking about what you shared. And as I prayed about it, I felt like God was prompting me to give to be part of what you're doing. Isn't that amazing? A life so consistent, he builds this bonfire of faith that impacts everyone around him one step at a time, one sacrifice at a time, and one step of curiosity at a time. Three ways that we build a genuine faith. Now what strikes me is maybe our application. What does it look like for you and I to bring our doubts, our curiosity, our skepticism, our opportunities, our talents and skills What if we brought those to the source of light, the source of life, and said, God, I hope you don't call me to do what he did. That sounds like way too much sacrifice. But God, I want to live a life of purpose and meaning. Now, here's what's so striking. These are two quotes. After he builds hospitals, after he builds schools, after he builds addiction centers, after he sacrifices so much, here's two quotes Hudson's known by. I never made a sacrifice. That is my belief. The compensation from God for giving up something is always about receiving more than I gave up. God has called me to be joyful. Wow, that's a lot of joy. The second quote he says is he falls in love with China. In fact, he falls in love with China such, he says, if I had a thousand pounds, I'd give them all to China. If I had a thousand lives, I would give them all to China. Well, not to China, but to Christ. Could we ever do too much for such great a savior? What if you and I did that? What if we brought all of our doubts, all of our opportunities, 
all of our questions and curiosity. He said, God, I wanna build a fire that burns and impacts the world, impacts generations with my skills. And God, you're gonna be the source, the center of my life. I'm willing to experiment, become curious, to try out and to surrender. Because if my life can be filled with a center of joy, the kind of joy that guy had, the kind of perseverance that guy had, I'm willing to lean in. I want that for you. We want that for you as a church. And doesn't our life more than, than anything, doesn't this time in history more than ever need people, need communities who are serving other people, not focusing on what we get, but what other people need? In fact, as you think about the events of this week, just everything that happened in our nation's capital, I want to pray, not for, just for us individually, but for us as a nation, that God would prompt us to be people who love our neighbors who serve our neighbors, whether they disagree with us politically or whether they disagree with us religiously, what does it look like for us to pray for the peace of the city around us? Let's pray together. Father, there's so many grieving. There's so many hurting. There's so much confusion and chaos. Father, we ask that you would bring about peace for our city, peace for our state, peace for our nation, and that you would fill us up with a light, a, life, a light of supernatural love, supernatural hope, and supernatural joy. We give all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.